0: Hi everybody, Um, thank you for joining us today for our webinar from the INSIGHT programme. We're now back for the fifth in our webinar series, this time focused on commercial fisheries. My name is Henk van Rijn, I'm on the INSIGHT programme director team and I'm going to introduce the webinar today. INSIGHT is coming to the end of its second phase now, but it's worth saying that when INSIGHT was set up, it was the first real joint industry programme of its kind in UK marine research. The partnership has grown over its second phase, bringing together combined interests of offshore industries, the Natural Environment Research Council, NERC, and the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science, CFAS, in a larger, more ambitious programme. INSIGHT's aim has always been to provide stakeholders with the independent scientific evidence to better understand the influence of man-made structures on the ecosystem of the North Sea. Briefly, I will say we're looking at topics as broad ranging as foraging by marine predators, testing the limits of the UK autonomous fleet, understanding fish aggregation and blue carbon benefits, reviewing the efficacy of decommissioning strategies, investigating the connectivity of all biodiversity associated with marine structures, as well as developing AI approaches to speed up the analysis, and investigating the effects and implications of subsea plastics incorporated into marine structures. And the focus of today's webinar is commercial fishing. Now, commercial fishing is the most widespread human activity at sea in the world. Defined as the for-profit practice of catching fish and other marine life by commercial fishing boats, its impact goes far beyond just ocean health and the management of fish populations. Commercial fishing is essential in supporting the global livelihoods of nearly 60 million people who are directly employed in the fisheries and aquaculture sector, as well as ensuring food supply for more than 3 billion people across the world who rely on seafood as their primary source of protein. Underlining the significance of commercial fishing, is nearly 123 billion in global seafood exchange every year that takes place. This is the most valuable traded food commodity in the world. So we're very fortunate today to hear a little bit about how our offshore structures can affect the fish that underpin this industry. To start us off and to introduce the topic, we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Rob Cook who's head of the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, is, uh, a fish evidence team, and who'll be providing some background on the work that DEFRA are doing in this area for consideration alongside the research findings from the INSIGHT projects. We'll then hear from the first of our uh, three INSIGHT investigators. Serena Wright from the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science will be talking about the EcoConnect, project, Professor Paul Fernandez from Harriet Watt talking about the Pounds project, a phase two project. And finally, Dr. Natalie Hicks from the University of Essex talking about the Thuicomps project, another f- phase two project. Finally, I will host a short question and answer session towards the end of the webinar in which uh, there will be an opportunity to ask our speakers any questions that you have about the talks today. I'll pass you on now to our first speaker,
1: Yeah, good morning, everybody. So yeah, I'm uh, Rob Cook. and I head up the fisheries science team here at uh, DEFRA. So I want to give you a brief kind of of policy introduction. And I'm going to focus on sort of two areas in particular. So first of all, as you're all aware, the UK has a very limited amount of marine space. um, But we have very ambitious targets on how we should use this marine space. With 50 gigawatts of offshore wind energy targeted by 2030, this will take obviously take up a significant amount of our marine space, but will be focused in a few areas. Added into this as well, we've also got our ambitions around our marine protected area network, which may have restrictions on fishing activity, uh, and this may occur in up to 40% of our marine space, which is the amount of our marine space that's currently designated as uh, repented areas so adding these two things together I think just these two factors together you also have to kind of consider all everything else that uses the marine space as well from aggregate extraction to oil and gas into to cabling all place significant challenges on our marine space. Currently, the fishing industry, as Hank said, is our kind of most widely uh, widely distributed um, activity. And at the moment, it faces very few, but, very, but growing number of spatial restrictions. But plots like this hide the diversity of the UK fishing industries, with vessels, uh, UK vessels ranging from huge pelagic trawlers to tiny sort of one-person inshore potting boats. And these obviously operate very differently at different scales. But also it hides how fishing activity is changing over time time as fishing activity responds to pressures such as fuel prices, uh, different fishing opportunities, and as well as how stocks move and adapt with climate change. So as such, there is a growing, a growing challenge around this spatial data and how it enables broad scale policy decisions that reflect the diversity of this fishing industry. Given the spatial squeeze, there is a kind of a growing need for co-location between the fishing industry and offshore wind. But what will this look like at a UK scale by 2030. Which fishing sectors will it favour? and Which sectors may be displaced and where will they go? And how will these decisions be made? With this co-location uh, and the increase in offshore wind will come new challenges for fisheries managers. Will offshore wind structures, for example, act as uh, fish aggregation devices or will they encourage increase production uh, at a stock level. Both of these things will require different management responses and will probably require and they'll probably have different responses per each for each stock as well. For example as well so which stocks will be most will be most impacted by our, by our changing sea uses and do we need to change how we internationally le- negotiate some of our shares for these stocks plus how will the co-factors of climate change and offshore wind interact for key stocks found in our shallow seas going forwards. Will we need more quota for soul and less for place for example so hopefully they provide you a kind of a, a little bit of a scene setter and an opener for the re- for the other talks thanks
0: thank you rob that was really good to get to get a sense of some of the challenges that you're encountering in your day-to-day work um and i think that sets the scene quite nicely to hand over to serena now
2: okay perfect um thank you again for um allowing me to talk to you today a bit about I suppose some work that was done quite a few years ago now. Um, so this this one will focus on a, a specific manuscript script and work area that um, I did probably about nearly 10 years ago now. Um, it basically focuses on the fish abundance in relation to man-made structures um, using tagging, scientific kind of survey data. So I'll just give you a brief overview of what this work actually did. As I mentioned, it was funded um, during phase one of Insight in 2016 and 2017. And the focus of this work was to explore how artificial structures may have a direct or indirect impact on the behaviour of mobile foragers. So we basically explored how environmental and physical features um, in the North Sea, so including things like wrecks, wind turbines, oil and gas structures, were associated with local abundance of three fish species, um, specifically card, place and thornback ray. So just to give you a rough overview of the methods that we used, as I mentioned at the start, we we focused on the use of um, electronic tags. These are some of the first um, devices used in these original studies. So one's a mark one and one's one of the low tech tags, I think. Basically, these tags are placed internally or externally on the fish and allow you to look at uh, fisheries independent behaviour of these animals at liberty um, over years, um, depending on how how long you Set the deployments for. As I said, we focused on three core species: place, cod, and thornback ray, and we reused some of some of the tagging work and the large ta- large tagging studies undertaken in the 90s. So pro- programs of work like Codicey. So there's huge amounts of tags were put in the water, and we used that information to basically better understand what was happening at, um, with the structures and the environmental conditions during those deployments. So it was basically a repurposing of of the tag data uh, and we combined it with data collected um over the same time periods during the ibts the international bottom Trawl surveys and we basically created general additive mixed effects models um just to look at how distribution um, changed and, and and was influenced by these different variables that we applied in the models. So just to give you a rough overview of the results, as I said, the kind of core cool results are we, we looked at how variation in abundance was explained by the different variables like depth, temperature, and structure presence. Unsurprisingly, the greatest variation was explained by physical variables. So depth and temperature were very important for the modeled species. As you can see in the top panel here, um you can see the the kind of the effect with a larger point showing a, a bigger effect, and the red being negative a correlation, and green being positive. Um, we did, we saw no significant contribution from wind farms at the time during that period. But I would like to note that. There were very few oil and gas and wind farm structures in the areas um, at the time of the study, so in the early 90s. And I think things are very, very different now. The core results for the for the kind of four blocks of species um, and areas studies. So for card depth and temperature were the most significant variables. For thornback ray, it was depth, temperature, and wreck abundance that explain the most variance. For central um, place in the North Sea, so, uh, it was depth, oil and gas, and cables. And finally, for the Western place, um, we saw uh, greatest variation explained by the oil and gas and cable distribution. So the table on the bottom right kind of summarises that. Uh, just to jump to the discussions again, we saw overlaps with between species um, abundance and structures. Um, So I think we can all predict that the, the overlap between species of abundance and structure presence will affect trophic dynamics. Um, which may impact their vulnerability in in these areas. In terms of what this means, ecologically, um, we don't know what impacts um, these changes in in kind of distribution and co-occurrence of species and structures is going to have, especially when factors are combined like climate change and other elements. But this study um, at least allowed us to point toward to things like uh, how we can use this information to um, better understand timings and how spatially you know they do change uh, their movements they they're not limited um, in space and times with where they can go so the fact that they maybe have higher abundance and and co-location with um for example oil and gas structures in quarter one that could potentially be used as a decision making in things like decommissioning and other factors um um, linked to man-made structure presence um, in the areas. Uh, finally, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the future because obviously this is this is quite an old study now, um, and we when we did this we always thought it would be kind of the before part of a study, um, and then the after study would be basically deploying tags in the similar areas to. Be- to look at how things have changed in terms of their movements. So further information um, at the time was needed on the state of the structures. Were they rotting? Were they covered in life? So I think there has been quite a lot of updates in the data available. And I think there'll be some um, links um, from Insight2 um, which has um, better explored that. Um, and as I mentioned, future tagging or other similar work um, are looking at kind of fisheries independent um, behaviour, um, especially now that we're seeing significant increases in the numbers of man-made structures in, in more recent years. So again, I think that links quite well with some more work that's undertaken during Insight 2, which we'll hear a little bit more about later. Um, and finally, um, my work area now mostly focuses on tuners um, and I work a lot with uh, tuna fisheries management organizations like ICAT. And most recently, there's there's been actually quite a lot of discussion about the impact man-made structures will have on large pelagics that are highly migratory, like bluefin tuna and other tuna species. So I think this is a, an area that is developing and obviously... I think, as um, as Rob mentioned earlier, them acting as hotspots and kind of aggregating uh, devices. The impacts of fish aggregating devices on tuners is huge. And there's a lot of work undertaken on that um, at these Tuna Commission meetings. So I think it'd be really interesting to see um, what direction this work goes, especially as, you know, belief in coming more prevalent in the southwest. So, yeah, uh, very interesting areas of work. And um, it's great to hear. I'm looking forward to the next talks so on the inside, too, anyway. So thank you for listening.
0: Thank you, Serena. Thank you. You raised some really some really interesting points there, and um, uh, uh, you know, particularly like what we've seen over the last ten years, a lot a lot more structures going into the North Sea. With the 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 relationships you're finding with the fish abundance and temperature, say we do know temperature is increasing too. So, there's two things increasing, and what are the implications of that going to be? Um, thanks again, Serena. And as you've as you've teed up Paul Fernandez very nicely, Paul is has been working on fish palms uh, an insight phase two project where where the work has progressed quite a bit and um, some of the methods and approaches that Paul was about to tell you about are are, are very cutting edge and reflecting what's going on now so Paul I' again the hand over to you please and um we'll hear a little bit about your project
3: hello everyone my name is Paul Fernandez I'm a fishery scientist here at the uh, Harriet Watts University in Edinburgh where I'm um, the Lyle Center for Environmental research I'm a fish scientist in the kind of traditional mould, count fish, and I've been doing so for about 30 years. Spent 17 years at the Marine Laboratory in, in, uh, in Aberdeen in Scotland and then um, moved over to the University of Aberdeen and I uh, moved over to Harriet Watt only just last year. So I'm going to talk about the Insight project called Fish Spams, uh, Spillover Production and Aggregation at Man-Made Marine Structures, and acknowledge... Um, My postdoc, Joshua Lawrence, has done some of this work, but also colleagues at the University of Strathclyde who are partners, um, as well as Marine Scotland, who provided some facilities, some of the work that you'll see. Just a a brief outline of what we'll be covering. Uh, So I'll talk about the INSIGHT project and in particular the concepts of spillover production and aggregation, terms you might have heard before. I'll touch on some of the technology you've been using. I'd like to make a distinction between studying fish uh, and fisheries. I'll touch on that. And then finally, I'll talk about the implications of our work for fisheries and some of the wider aspects, Uh, topics such as the spatial squeeze that has been mentioned already by Rob, uh, changes in distribution, and actually implications for scientific monitoring. Okay, so we know that man made marine structures attract fish, and in some cases, they are being shown to be highly productive areas of the Gulf of California, for example. And this has led in various places to the rigs to reef programs, uh, notably in the USA, Gulf of Mexico, but also work we've been doing in Australia and Thailand with uh, Chevron. And prior evidence suggests that the density, although it's quite high, is very localised. So generally, when you look at the distribution of fish, so fish density uh, as a function of distance, it's quite variable. And as you've seen uh, in the previous talk, it can vary according to factors such as depth and temperature. But in the case of introduction of a structure like an oil and gas platform, which provides uh, a niche and a habitat and food for fish in particular and other organisms, you get an elevated fish density. So very short distances. And at the structure itself, we know we get quite very high densities. Range of influence, as I said before, in previous studies, um, mostly in the Gulf of Mexico, but also in the North Sea early in in the early 2000s, suggested that it uh, it was very localized. And this range of influence um, of higher densities at the structure was very much localized to the structure within about 100 meters, according to published works. However, if this was to occur over a larger distance, you would get spillover from the structure uh, out into the wider area. And this is a common feature of marine protected areas, for example. And this is either caused by aggregation of fish moving towards the structure and or production by fish producing at the structure and dissipating out into the wider area. So these are the three terms, aggregation, production and spillover, that we've been looking for evidence for in the Fish Farmers project. We've been doing that using sonar, um, multi-frequency echo sounders to be precise, which provide very high resolution data to study these effects. And we can do some signal processing to isolate components, such as the fish schools in this case, and then we can integrate all of this information to give us fish numbers and density. Because we know how much energy is reflected from one fish, we can sum up all the energy, acoustic energy coming back from all of these fish and then give us a density estimate. We can do some other types of signal processing to isolate single fish. So the previous one was fish schools, such as herring and sprat. In this case, we're talking about uh, individual gadoid fish, such as hake, haddock, cod, saith, or whiting. And these appear as individual dots Uh, because they're distributed as individual fish and we can use different sets of algorithms to determine these and then we can count these and come up with densities fished there. So we did a survey of small man-made marine structures, so this is a a typical uh, jacket and these a bit, some of these have been partly decommissioned, notably Miller and Hutton in the North Sea. And uh, as a result, what's left is footings. But these footings are still significant structures. They're about 20 metres high and 40 by 80 metres. And we surveyed these structures in 2021, courtesy and Marine Scotland. And If you put all of that data together, we can plot the densities and estimate the range of influence by fitting a segmented regression, as you can see here, by the Miller platform on the left and the Hutton platform. And the important thing is to note that these regions of influence for these small structures are of the order of um, several hundred metres. That was for schooling fish. We found very similar results for individual fish, around 356 metres at Miller and 600 metres at Hutton. So we want to contrast that with uh, larger man-made structures, existing oil and gas platforms that haven't been decommissioned. And we did a similar approach, collecting data um, from 16 platforms, this time on a large ship. So we weren't able to get right over the platforms but we were able to get very close. Slightly different effects this time where the average range of influence was was much longer seven kilometers and we had a slightly different approach in estimating the density as a distance from structure whereby we compared that with background fish density in similar conditions similar substrates similar depths similar latitudes but far away from the structures and the average range of influence for the larger structures was about seven kilometers but quite variable So at that scale, you have to consider not just a single man-made marine structure and its range of influence. But as you consider these over an order of kilometres, they butt into other man-made marine structures. And in the case of oil and gas platforms, there might be several that are located on on a field. But then you can consider um, offshore wind farms where the network is much tighter. And even though the structures are smaller, the range of influences might be smaller. They're also much closer together. So when you think about it as a network, it's no longer just relevant to look at fish density as a function of distance, but look at fish density as a, as a function of platform density, as a function of uh, man-made marine structure density. And these you'd expect that the, the more um, platforms there are per unit area, the more fish you would expect to see. And these are the, our results when you consider this network um, effect where we measure platform density as opposed to one individual. Finally, I just wanted to talk about the fish and fisheries distinction. Um, So when you talk about fish, you're really looking at fisheries ecology to study their distribution and abundance. And in particular, when you look at uh, man-made marine structures, you might be interested in fish as prey for other receptors, such as seabirds and marine mammals. And the difference to looking at fisheries is that this is more about the human activity to catch fish. And while it includes elements of fish ecology clearly, it also includes that human element and the socio-economic uh, factors which drive um, human activity, notably the fact that they want to go to high-density areas to catch fish. So what are the implications for fisheries from our work? First of all, to talk about the spatial squeeze. So ABP Mayor have been commissioned to write a report for the NFFO and the Scottish Fishermen's Federation, and so that excludes fishers, at least of mobile gear, uh, in an operational sense because they can't operate in wind farms, or in a regulatory sense because they can't operate in marine protected areas. So you have a loss of traditional areas for these fishermen and you have increased competition in the areas that are left. In terms of changes in fish distribution, we've seen that um, fish clearly move into these man-made marine structure networks, so you've got aggregation of fish into these networks. So that's almost like a double whammy for fishermen. They're excluded from these areas but the fish potentially move into them. However, if there is some production, then perhaps fish will spill out of these marine, man-made marine structures and their networks. And as they do, they spill over and you might find that fishing is very profitable on, along the edge of these structures. And that's quite typical in the case of marine protected areas in other parts of the world where fishermen along the edges of these marine protected areas. And finally, just a few notes on scientific monitoring, because our surveys, the IBTS, the International Bottom Trawl Survey that was mentioned earlier, will also be excluded. And so we'll have to think about new methods for doing that. And we did some work actually at Rockall, where we used video samplers instead of trawls uh, to survey monkfish, for example. And we'd also have to think about stratification in terms of our survey design, such that we include these hotspots, otherwise we might be missing, missing fish. So just to conclude then, we found that oil and gas platforms have quite long range of influence on in fish density uh, and a spillover effect from the immediate structure, and that larger structures may have longer regions of influence, but it is variable and there were no effects in some structures, and we're trying to find out why that might be. It's clear that MMS act as networks, particularly as offshore wind farms. And then implications for fisheries are uncertain because exclusion, combined with other exclusions and fish aggregation, may reduce fishing opportunities but production and spillover may enhance them. And I guess it's that balance that we need to determine to work out what will be the implications of fisheries overall. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Paul. You raised some really interesting points there. I'd, 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 I'd love to hear some questions about that too. I think there there is a lot of uncertainty over, over if, if you've got greater a greater aggregations around areas where the fish the fish can either not be fished or fishermen cannot go for other reasons if the fish are uh comfortable and end up spawning there and you end up getting production then you might end up creating a great a great uh, um juxtaposition <laughs> so so i think i think uh, yes if if anyone in our in our in our audience has any questions for paul around around many of the issues he raises there but also I'm sure you can see that the science is built on from um Serena's work 10 years ago, and you're getting a far greater precision of the surveys and how the data are being used. So that's really great to see. Um thank you, Paul. We're gonna hand over to our our, our third speaker, third science speaker today. That's Natalie Hick.
4: Brilliant, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really pleased to present some of our work today on the FUCOMS project. It's slightly different slant to what Serena and Paula presented. Our project is a benthic-focused uh, research project, and so we're looking at the seabed. Uh, and today I'll present some of the work, but happy to discuss any of the other variables and parameters we've measured that may come up throughout my talk. So for those of you who uh, maybe have not been seeing the news, you may not realise that seabed carbon and fisheries have been really high-impact stories recently, particularly in the last couple of years. After a high impact study or two came out of the US, uh, which suggested that bottom trawling could be as uh, detrimental to the climate as air travel, suggesting that the act of trawling uh, resuspends carbon and eventually leads to CO2 emissions being emitted back into the atmosphere. Now, this has gone back and forth with different scientists and different controversies. It's still hugely controversial, uh, but as yet, we don't have any scientific empirical evidence to support this. Trawling is one of the the biggest activities we see, particularly in the North Sea. This is an image just showing uh, the rough trawling swept area across our continental shelves. This is from an IGOD report in 2017, and it just shows a sort of snapshot of time and where trawling occurs, that these areas are trawled more repeatedly or a number of times over a year. But as alluded to uh, initially by Rob in his introductory talk, uh, we use our seas for a number of different reasons and different activities. And one of the other ones that we still to see an increase in is our energy extraction. So then site program is really focused on oil and gas infrastructures and we're now starting to look at the role of offshore wind within that too. Many of our oil and gas infrastructures are coming to the end of their serviceable life so we're starting to see considerations to decommissioning. Uh, Serena alluded to the rigs to reef approach which is not yet adopted uh, under the OSPAR convention uh, but it's helping us question and form some of our decisions in terms of offshore wind too. So we've got a number of human activities occurring within the North Sea uh, and it's that consideration and management of these activities whilst also uh, providing an environmental sort of protection status depending on what we want to focus our priorities on. Now the seabed is particularly important and it plays a role in carbon. We know that oceans play a huge role in helping uh, regulate our climate and they take up a significant amount of our CO2 emissions but as for the carbon itself a huge bulk of this is actually stored in the sediments Uh, and just as a reminder that when we talk about carbon we often talk about carbon stocks uh, in terms of blue carbon. But also what is also important is the movement of carbon between these different stocks. And, but at the same time, we know that the, the seabed is really variable and very patchy. Most of our North Sea sediments tend to be a slightly coarser, permeable, sandy sediments with a few muddier spots. And the muddier the sediment tends to be, we assume, it's got a higher amount of organic carbon. And so it's interesting to look at the interaction of that and overlying that with where some of our trawling activities may be. What is really interesting from a carbon perspective is that as soon as we erect a man-made structure such as oil and gas or renewables within this uh, environment there's there's often an exclusion zone associated with this and this excludes certain activities such as trawling or dredging and we thought within our project this would be really interesting to investigate that a little bit further and see if perhaps uh, these areas could provide us with a bit of a baseline for understanding the carbon dynamics particularly when we think about some of the oil and gas structures, which have been in place since about the 70s. So we've got a good few decades where a lot of this human activity has been excluded. And so similar to what Paul mentioned in his study, uh, we were lucky enough to get samples on the same research survey that visited two of the decommissioned sites. So we've got Miller in the south And we've got Northwest Hutton further north. Both of these have been partially decommissioned with their footings remaining intact, but all the top side of the structure has gone. uh, And they they were decommissioned at slightly different times. So Northwest Hutton was decommissioned in 2009 and Miller's decommissioning program was completed in 2018. And we really wanted to uh, study the amount of carbon within these structures uh, from close by the structures at an increasing distance gradient away from them. And so we sampled the seabed at an increasing gradient, starting at 50 metres and then doubling our distance as we moved away from the structures. Uh, So 50, 100, 200 and 400. These are highlighted in red because the exclusion zone around uh, active oil and gas structures is 500 metres. So all of these time points fall within what would have been the exclusion zone and then moving out of that into 800 metres, 1600 metres and 3.2 kilometers. We looked at a number of different measurements such as hydrocarbons, contaminants, uh, macrofauna. but today I want to really talk about some of our carbon results. And this is work that my PhD student, Hugo, has been working on for the last 18 months. We measured the total carbon, uh, the organic and inorganic carbon as well. Uh, Looked at quantifying the carbon stocks up to the sediment type, which plays a huge role in some of this. And we also use uh, radionuclide chemistry to look at the sediment accumulation rate. So I'm just going to present some of our carbon data, carbon data from the two platforms. So we've got the Miller platform, Northwest Hutton platform. These are both organic carbon, which is generally what we think about when we talk about blue carbon. And what's really striking straight away is that you can see there's a different story between the two platforms. So Miller platform has a quite a large amount of carbon really close to the structure, and this drops really quickly as we move further away. Whereas when we look at Northwest Hutton, it's a lot more variable. We don't see any uh, clear changes, but we do see an increase in the variability of the amount of carbon around the 204 metre exclusion zone uh, within that former exclusion zone. And then as we move away, we can start to see that variability drops. So we're not seeing a magic cutoff as we move through, but we are seeing a reduction in the variability, which could be attributed to some of the other activities that occur outside of that exclusion zone. If we have a look and extrapolate that to total amount of carbon, so this is the top 10 centimetres, how much carbon we have around those sites, being a slightly different story with higher concentrations of carbon closer to the Miller platform uh, and dropping away as we move away, relatively consistent. And then we see a lot more carbon around the northwest Hutton sites. Again, we've got that little bit of variability around the 200 and 400 metre zone. uh, And then we head back into out of our exclusion zone. So we can see there's a lot of difference in the carbon dynamics. And we're at the stage where we're starting to uh, explore why this may be. But in terms of what the key messages are and how this links back to fisheries and trawling, uh, importantly, the two sites are very different. So we can't extrapolate from looking at one or two or maybe even five different decommissioned sites to what this might mean for man-made structures and carbon dynamics. Now, we know context is important. Uh, some of these were alluded to in the previous talks, things like temperature, water depth, uh, age of structure, time since decommissioning. And importantly, for when we're talking about carbon, understanding the sediment type we're working with is really important and it's often a key predictor in how much carbon may be found there. We can see that the carbon stock does vary within the exclusion zone. There's no magic cutoff as we cross into that exclusion zone or back out of it. But what appears to be is a little bit of variability around the 200 and 400 metre mark, which is far enough away, we know, from some of the other parameters, such as the radionuclide tracing. We know that about 200 metres, we're away from the impact of the man-made structure and the activities that occurred during, the, during that platform being active but we're also within that exclusion zone. So 200 to 400 meter feels like a place where we might see those baseline carbon dynamics. We know there's a legacy impact the closer we move to man-made structures. We can see this in the Miller platform where we've got that peak of carbon closest to the platform. Some of this is underpinned by the hydrodynamics um, and the hydrocarbons that are found around that, around the proximity of the platform. What we don't yet know is how the carbon dynamics may be changed prior to that decommissioning practice and the activity that occurs as part of decommissioning. So we went out and sampled after decommissioning was complete. And we know that as one of the uh, sort of safe holes they do as part of decommissioning is to trawl around the site to make sure there's not anything dangerous left on the seabed that could be detrimental to any trawlers. However, it appears that these sites are not just automatic carbon sinks. And then moving forward, this is something we're looking to explore in a sort of wider context. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the hydrocarbons and the effects around oil and gas sites, but we're seeing an increase in the impact of renewables. And as Paul mentioned, these are often a number of different structures in quite a close area, and this is likely to have impact on the carbon dynamics within that local area. And then interestingly, this is something I've thought about and talked with Paul recently at a conferences. If we're seeing the changes in these fish populations around these sites, this is changing the biological carbon cycle and the carbon pump within these sites. And this is likely to also directly impact carbon dynamics. This would be something really exciting to work
0: together moving forward.
4: Thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you, Natalie. Um, you've um You've uh, um, added a new dimension there, but you've also you've also built in some new angles there that 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 are worth considering. Uh, sort of adding adding in carbon dynamics to the mix, and I think it's a really interesting question around sort of if if you pull together what Serena and Paul have found about um, fish aggregations around structures, and if you think about the implications for the food webs and how that would affect carbon cycling, I think that's that's a really interesting in- interesting study for the future. Thank you to, to all four of our speakers now who have who've shared some of the most recent research coming out of their programs. At this point, we open up uh, to answer to answer some of the questions that we've had so far. I think the first question that came up earlier today, a uh, question for yourself, Serena, it's about the tagging, the tagging work. And I know you said that those Mark 1, Mark 2 tags are old now. And I know you're working on some newer tags, particularly with your Tuna work. So... Uh, it's sort of bringing all all of that in mind in particular how have you managed to get the fish up from depth in in good condition in order to release them again as well if that happens
2: Uh. yeah it's a really good question and um i mean a lot of the studies um and obviously i said that at the start um a lot of this was legacy kind of uh data sets from codacy and a number of really large tagging programs i think they were funded through defra as well um all those years ago um but in terms of the methods for tagging, um, there's been so many refinements over the decades. Um, but originally, I think the, the focus always is on the gears in use. Some, some fishing methods just don't bring up the fish in good conditions, so you can't effectively tag them. The choice of gear is very important, but also making sure, um, for example, we more recently use um, like anesthesia to, to put them under if we're doing an internal tagging. Depends on basically the species and how large it is. But sometimes we put them in the stomach, um, kind of the well, the body cavity. Otherwise it's kind of on the just under the second dorsal or dorsal fin. So um, we tend to have like large holding tanks on the vessel. So you bring them up, check them over, make sure they're in good condition. Um apply the tag um, either using anesthesia or not, depending on the species um and then give put them back in that recovery tank make sure they come round and, and are in, um, in good nick before they're released it's kind of like the uh yeah fitness for release assessment that's done on them um i'd say more recently um tags are smaller um we've got things like floats on them as well now so in the past we were reliant on fishers catching them now we we basically, a recent study on bass, um, I think we had 50% of the recoveries from beach comas. So they, they, they're they kind of little tags with little jack float jackets on. So they'll wash up on the beaches and then be recovered. So, um, But yeah, I think to minimize impacts on kind of barotrauma and things like that, you have to make sure that the fishing method um, really brings the fish up in good condition. Otherwise, you know. They're not going
0: to they're not going to live for very long
2: if they've been dragged through a trawl <laughs> for for, yeah. for a few hours. So, yeah, I hope that answers sounds, your
0: question. Like it sounds like quite a lot of care is put into it with, you know, with the holding tanks on the vessel and, and um, going through sort of an assessment before they're released again. So uh, quite a considered process. Um, interesting uh, call out there for us all. If we're if we're sort of going along any beach walks to look out for any tags along the strand line. Sounds like Serena could do with those if you do spot them. <laughs> Yes,
2: please. Um, Some of them are worth, um, if you get some of the tuna tags, which are quite large and and like big black um, with the floats on, I think you get, um, you put into a prize draw and you could win a grand. So, you know, supplementing your income as well. So it, it pays to go on beach walks.
0: There you go. There you go. Thanks, um, thanks, Serena. I've got a question for Paul now. A question from Beth Scott around the interesting ideas you're proposing for sort of future experiment there really to sort of design new surveys that could look more strategically around collecting data, around man-made structures. In in that design, would it also be useful to include sort of, in addition to, to the artificial structures, also sort of known hydrographic features that we know to be of importance to the fish? Beth, mentions kind of internal waves in the water column these can create tidal mixing density fronts those features are sometimes also associated with the structures would that be something you think that'd be interesting to incorporate in and and any other ideas that you can think of
3: uh, I mean yeah it's absolutely right these natural hot spots uh, it'd be great if uh, if we knew where they were and if they were persistent and if they had a reasonable probability of being associated with higher density or actually higher variability which is what you want to minimise when you do a survey. The only trouble is when it comes to fronts, and I've been, I have a bit of history about this because I did my PhD on the Western Irish Sea tidal mixing front, spent three years trying to find fish around it, and you do get productivity at these fronts, so chlorophyll A were maximised, subsurface chlorophyll A, um, and there was several interesting features associated with them, but um, not many fish. <laughs> um, so we were particularly looking for uh, for herring and sprat around the, the, that particular front. Uh, and I've actually since been working with Bang University. We've got a project funded by NERC called Shear, where we're looking at um, prey of a variety of seabirds in the Irish Sea. And we, we put a, a moored device at the Western Irish Sea tidal mixing front sort of doing my PhD again after 30 years. Um, And we also did some surveys with a ship and around this, concentrating on that front. And because these fronts are so dynamic and they're pretty weak features and they sort of move a lot in space, uh, it's really hard to pinpoint where their activity is going to be. But more importantly, the fish response is not consistent. So we found, for example, that there was more fish in other areas around the Irish Sea. uh, Paradoxically, actually, up in the northeast where... There's a load of oil and gas structures and new wind farms, uh, which is really interesting. So, I mean, yes, if we can find them, um, but I'm, I remain to be convinced about the influence of fronts, particularly in the North Sea, on um, fish in particular.
0: That's all really interesting. And I think, Paul, the, 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 some of the work going on in the in the Eco Wind program under the Palagio project is looking at some of the questions around fronts. So there'll be a lot more attention in that area and hopefully they have a bit more luck than you in chasing your fronts there. In the... not, it's
3: not the fronts. The fronts are there and they move around. It's just the fish are just a bit more mobile and it, it's, not, it's not a feature they, they seem to like very much.
0: It's it's worth pointing out, and as Serena's touched on, we are studying mobile, um, highly mobile creatures. And as we saw in some of you know the diagrams mentioned, they move around even according to the time times of day, and can be very very different in their location. I'd like I'd like to move on to a question for Natalie, and it's really, you know, it's Natalie with with these with these dynamics and the fish moving around so much. You mentioned that some of your research that you were looking into going forward in your research team. We'll be looking at more of the wind, the wind turbines and the structures in and around that. And we know your work is also looking at carbon dynamics. And I'm wondering what you think, sort of going forward, you know, taking some of the experiments that Paul was thinking about and 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 combining that with the offshore wind growth in that industry, um, you know, are there other opportunities to then study carbon dynamics um, in and around the wind farms and how would how would you link that to considering food web implications that could then lead on to the fish and then be considered by fisheries?
4: Yeah, absolutely. That's a very long question. I'll try to answer it.
0: Yeah. Um. (laughs)
4: Yeah, uh short answer is yes. We are looking at carbon dynamics around wind farms too. We've just got back from a cruise in the Irish Sea at the moment. So we're in the middle sampling, processing all of those samples. Yeah, it would be really interesting to combine that sort of fisheries aspect with the carbon aspect. Uh, if you've got a number of fish in a, one area for a significant amount of time, there is going to be some output to the seabed from that, through the form of, say, fecal pellets, which is a type of carbon. Uh, if you've got an increased amount of that, then the chances are there's an increased proportion of that that will become buried in the sediments too. Uh, and then in terms of food web stuff, what we are doing in within our project too is looking at existing data and looking at food web and connectivity and overlaying that with a layer of man-made structures to see how that changes too. And that's work we've been doing with CFAS. And so we've got two manuscripts in preparation at the moment looking at how uh, the food waves may change with around these structures over time and what some of those drivers might be. Now we've only really done that on oil and gas so far. And one of the big drivers appears to be hydrocarbons. So not so much the physical structure itself, but the, the sort of uh, proxy for that, which is the hydrocarbons contaminant gradient as we move away. It'd be really interesting to see how that changes within a wind farm. Obviously within a wind farm, you've got a number of structures in a relatively small area. And often wind farms are adjacent to other wind farms, which also might have knock on impacts for the hydrodynamics. So it's definitely an area moving forward. And I I see a few of these are being addressed by some of the EcoWind projects.
0: I've got a follow on question for yourself and for Paul, actually. Um, uh, It's not whether you bumped into each other when going to the decommissioned rigs when you were up there. It's more around Mm -hmm. what additional data were collected when you're up there. We've got a question that's come through around um well around the water currents that were in the water columns at the sites and it's around the plankton and um you know you know if either of you recorded plankton when you were up there and i suppose we're thinking from the you know the terms of the plankton contributing to the carbon budgets and the carbon cycling but then also the fish the fish uh, aggregation their distribution
4: um i'll start off in that portal fill in the gaps No, we did not measure plants and We did look at water currents. We looked at currents and hydrodynamics initially just to see if that could perhaps explain any changes we see in the carbon. And if you think about it, the hydrodynamics may uh, create perhaps a shadow effect around a man-made structure if they do have an influence. Uh, So you'd expect to see that similar to what we see, say, around fish farms, that sort of footprint on the seabed. But we did not find water currents to be... uh, a big factor in our samples, but it is also important in considering oil and gas sites, particularly as we head into decommissioning, because in places where there aren't huge amounts of currents, there are drill cuttings piles that still exist. uh, And we see that particularly in the Northern North Sea, If we move into the southern North Sea, that's not really an issue. It's a more dispersive environment. The sediment's a lot sandier, and so we're not having that sort of uh, legacy effect that we see in the northern North Sea. Paul, over to you.
3: Yeah, so there was no... uh, We have acoustic data at high frequency, so we could take a plankton signal out of that data. Um, My recollection is that there's not a lot of structure close to the man-made structures Usually, you can see, for example, internal waves come up in uh, the sonar quite effectively. And you can see patches of like krill. And then uh, sometimes, uh, if the plankton is really concentrated, you could see those clouds that I showed you before in one of the images. But then around those structures, at least at the distances about two kilometers either side, there wasn't much. But we can have a look at that for sure. Uh, And then I think the ship also collected temperature data. As for um currents don't think we have me- measurements that were made, but we can, and we have done actually um looked at uh, outputs from hydrodynamic models of the tidal and residual current vectors and we haven't found anything that relates to currents so far. Uh, and then there was a question about temperature. Um, yeah, well we, we've got that data. Um, and the fish that we're looking at actually prefer cooler, um, water, so cod, for example, but then the variation that's likely to occur um over the distances that we've measured is you know far, far less than what was typically in the North Sea. If you think about winter to summer in the North Sea, seabed depth to surface, you know, you're talking many degrees from you know five in the depths at winter to possibly 16 degrees in in surface waters in the summer and stratified waters potentially. So yeah, you know, those kind of ranges of um, temperature are what are experienced by um, a number of these species, and I think that's likely to be yeah. more significant than what what's what's changing in the in the region of an oil and gas structure. But I haven't actually measured it, so that'd be maybe worth looking into.
0: Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Thanks for answering that, and and I'd also I'd also like I'd also like to open that up to Serena, um, uh, because I know Serena in Um, uh, in the study you worked on you were also looking for relationships and any correlations if possible and um, two clear signals that you did that you did see were relationships between depth and temperature and the fish aggregations um, in the study from a while ago but but I also know that some of your more recent work is is also um, is also looking at this kind of thing and you know you mentioned um, the implications of tuna and so on so I wonder if we could if we could open this up a little bit and you know uh, you know assuming assuming the temperatures are going to increase sort of um, slowly steadily over time you know would would you like to comment a little on on some of the you know the wider implications you know Paul's given us a range there but but you know what would happen if that range um uh, sort of moved up a little bit <laughs> so we had sort of Our bottom temperatures might stay similar but our our upper temperatures might increase quite a bit and what would the implications be for the fish there
2: it's a very very good question and um i think um my i think my main comment on that would be this would be very much species specific and probably stock specific and it's uh it's a question that has is receiving a lot more attention i suppose in recent um decades as well you know what's influencing the changes in fish distribution especially for some of these large pelagics that are you know traverse oceans it depends on you know um it's like there's so many factors that are coming in and um playing their part and i think the influence of ten- temperature along with man made structures um yeah, I, I think there, there's there's already been some big changes in distributions and abundance, and you know we've seen that in, I think it was the last, I think it's is it like eight years, eight to ten years, uh, the bluefin tuna have come back in the southwest. What was driving that is that food availability? Is it temperatures? Have conditions changed? Is it their prey that's making them move? Um, I think my my main thought is it's very dis- difficult to disentangle what the driving factors are. And um, it will always be a challenge because we're limited in what we're able to record as well. So quite often we focus on depth, temperature, salinity, because we have it modelled. You know, we have the nice products that, you know, we can apply to our models and simulations. But there's so many other elements that um, will be driving the distributions. For example, anoxic layers. You know, we're getting uh, better products which will allow us to better understand changes. But I think it's a very big question and it's so... Dependent on where you're looking and the species and the stuff, because so I think it's a it's a very dynamic environment out there, and um, I think we just need more more things in situ, you know, on these structures. I mean, there must be monitoring temperatures and and, and other factors um, that alongside them. So I think it would be great to to see what products are going to be out there as well in the coming years. I mean, imagine you know if all structures had you know a range of temperatures and or, or other variables that they're recording continuously that can be used to better understand you know maybe acoustic signal biomass strength you know yeah I think there's a lot of studies that could be done in the future but you know there's there's a lot to be done still maybe
0: yeah yeah, yeah answer yeah. it I don't know look, like, absolutely yeah let's hope it happens um you know lots of opportunities here and first of all I'd like to um thank all of our panelists for some great talks Really super, really super. I'd like to thank everyone and thank you all. Goodbye.